Heavenly Father, thank you for the life and example of our Lord Jesus Christ and for the richness of the rewards we have in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Thank you too for the opportunity to hear your word and for the inspiration it provides to us. We also pray that you'll guide Alan during his sermon today. So uh, Romans 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that your word speaks to us, that we can know you, and know the hope that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So, being an international student is hard. I know this because I work at Deakin uh, with the Deakin uh, International Admissions Team. Now, international students, they come to study in Melbourne for multiple different reasons. Some students come to get a, a better degree. They come in hope that their degree will get them a better job. Some other students come, uh, not for the degree, but they come in hope that they can stay here. They come for the most livable city, one of the most livable cities in the world. Right? They come in hope that they can stay here in Melbourne. But the thing is, they don't really know if they'll actually find a better job after they graduate. And they don't know if they will find, uh, be able to have a permanent resident visa, even if they find a job here in Australia. I mean, they can certainly hope so. They certainly hope so. They certainly hope that they can get a visa, but their hope is not certain at all. Their future as an international student is not certain. But Christians, Christians have a hope that is certain. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that justified Christians have a hope that is certain. So why don't you keep your Bibles open and let's have a look at why our hope is certain. Now, before we start, you'll notice in verse 1, the very first word is therefore. Now, when you see the word therefore, it's always a good question to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Or in other words, why does Apostle Paul say therefore? Well, he gives us a clue in verse 1 since we have been justified by faith. What does it mean to be justified? Well, justified means to be made right. 
But to make something right implies that something was wrong. And that's what Paul explains in Romans 1, chapter, uh, 1 to 3, that there's something wrong about humanity. Right? In, in Genesis 1, all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, God, the creator of the universe, created human beings in his image. God created us. God cared for us. God provided for us. God loved us. But we as sinful human beings worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. We exchanged, we traded God the creator for created things instead. It's kind of like if you had a child. If you had a child whom you loved, whom you cared for, whom you provided for, whom you fed, whom you even changed nappies for. Now imagine if your child said to you, you're not my real daddy, or you're not my real mummy. Instead, they pick a random stranger on the street and say to you, that person is my actual daddy. That person is my actual mummy. How? And they walk off with that stranger holding their hand. How crazy would that be? There is so much wrong in that picture. And likewise, it is wrong to worship created things rather than the creator. But that is what every human being does. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one is in the right. And again in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have sinned and done wrong against God by worshipping and serving created things over him, the creator. And as a result, God is angrier at us for rejecting him. But the thing is, God's anger is a righteous anger. Right? If your biological child traded you for a random stranger on the street, you'll be so angry at your child. In fact, you should be angry. It would be right for you to be angry. Well, if I said that to my parents, I would get smacked with a metal spatula. Likewise, God has every right to be angry at us because we chose to reject him. We are in the wrong, and so we deserve to be punished. That is why we need to be justified. But how can we be justified? How can we be made right with God? And how can we rest restore our relationship with God? Well, there's nothing, that, there's nothing we can do, but God, he provides us with a solution. Paul says in Romans 3, uh, 24 and 25, that all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. You see, God presented Christ as the solution to be a sacrifice of atonement. What does it mean to be a sacrifice of atonement? Well, it means to suffer God's righteous anger 
on behalf of someone else. You see, Jesus suffered the punishment that we had deserved for our sins. God's righteous anger is dealt with by Jesus shedding his blood on the cross. And in turn, God declares us justified, declares us righteous, right in his sight. It's kind of like this. Right? Imagine if this hand represents humanity, and this red paper represents our sins, and this hand represents Jesus, and this green paper represents Jesus' righteousness. When Jesus dies on the cross, what happens is, is that our sins are traded for his righteousness. Our sins are dealt with by Jesus on the cross, and we are declared justified, righteous in God's sight. And you'll notice that there's nothing, nothing about what we have done to make ourselves justified. It's what Jesus has done on the cross. And that's why in Romans 4, Paul explains that we have been justified through faith, not through works. So that is what the therefore is therefore. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, now that we understand what's going on in Romans, now let's have a look at the rest of Romans chapter 5. Please keep your Bibles open at Romans 5. Now first we'll look at what the Christian hope is and how hope comes from justification. Now hope is one of the three things that we have now because we've been justified. Since we have been justified, verse 1, we have uh, peace, grace, and hope. First in verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, previously, we were uh, enemies with God, and God was angry at us. There was a metal spatula waiting for us. But now we're no longer enemies with God because Jesus has, has dealt with God's anger. Second, look at verse 2. We have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Right, previously, we were separated from God. We had a broken relationship. Now, we stand in the presence of God. It's not just we're no longer enemies. In fact, we have an actual personal relationship with God. And third, look at verse 2. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Previously, we had no hope because there's nothing we can do about God's anger. But now we have a hope, the hope of the glory of God. But what is this hope of the glory of God? What a weird phrase. What is that? What does it mean? Well, it's interesting because this passage doesn't actually explain it at all. The only other time that Paul mentions the word hope again is in chapter 8. In Romans 8, Paul acknowledges that the whole world is in suffering. The present world is in suffering. Because of our sin and our rejection of God, both creation and humanity are all in suffering, in pain, and in decay. 
But one day, God will make all things new. There will be a new creation, a new creation and a new humanity without sin. God will adopt us to be his children, to be heirs of this new creation. And God will also redeem our earthly bodies to be glorified as children of God. This is the hope of a future glory that is to come. But in both Romans 8 and Romans 5, you can see that our hope of glory is somehow connected with our sufferings. So we've seen how hope comes from justification. Now we'll see how hope comes from sufferings. Look at verse 3. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Now the Greek word for glory is actually the same word as boast. In verse 2, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Same word. So really, verse 3 is saying, not only so, but we also boast in our sufferings. But what is there to boast when we experience suffering? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 3. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Right? It's like a natural progression. Right? Suffering produces perseverance. I mean, suffering is a really painful process, but it pushes us to persevere, to, to endure the pain and the tears. And in turn, as we persevere, perseverance produces character. As we endure through the hardship of suffering, we grow in some way, shape, or form. Whether whether that's becoming more patient, becoming more compassionate, becoming more self-controlled. And in turn, this better character produces more hope. As we become more patient, for example, we focus less on the now and more on the future. We look less towards the present sufferings and we look more towards the future glory. So, So somehow, in God's sovereign plan, our suffering actually leads us towards our hope. And that is why we can boast even in our sufferings. We can boast in the good times and the bad times because we have a future hope of glory. And even in the terrible times of suffering, our hope is actually made stronger. But what is your view of suffering? I mean, do you see suffering as a good thing? Now, it's not hard to trick yourself to think that you do see suffering as a good thing. I mean, you could easily say something like, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, right? But seeing suffering as a good thing is different, is easier said than done. Because if you know that suffering is a good thing, then you would boast 
in your sufferings. In fact, you would even thank God for your suffering. But when was the last time you thanked God for your suffering? Has anyone heard of a woman called uh, Bronwyn Chin? Bronwyn was the wife of Richard Chin, the national director of AFES, the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students. Uh, she's the middle one up on the top. She was diagnosed with widespread pancreatic cancer in December 20, 2009. And in June 2012, she wrote an article about her two-and-a-half-year struggle with her cancer. Now, I wish I could read the whole article. I have a link in the outline below. But let me just read the first two paragraphs. I thank God for the gift of cancer. I don't like being in pain, and I don't like having terminal pancreatic cancer at all. I would like to grow old with my husband and see my kids grow up, but God appears to have a better plan. I know that he is faithful. His plans are the best and do not revolve around me. Acts 13, 36 says, For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. When God has done what he wants through me, I will die in his perfect timing. Why has God given me cancer? Maybe it is to make me repent of my wrongs and turn to Jesus. It has certainly done this. Maybe it is to make me talk more to my friends and family about Jesus. It has certainly done this. Maybe it is for reasons way beyond my understanding. It is certainly at least this. All I know is that God has given me this gift of cancer to use for his glory. We pray daily for the cancer to miraculously go away. But if God chooses to say no, we can trust him nonetheless. I don't know about you, but I find that both super encouraging and super challenging at the same time. That someone would thank God for their terminal pancreatic cancer. If that's not boasting in our sufferings, then I don't know what is. But it's not like she's delusional. It's not. She felt the pain, and she even prayed every day for it to go away. But she knew that God can use her suffering for his glory. And it has certainly done this. Let me encourage you to read the rest of the article in your own time. Because this is what it looks like to have the hope of the glory of God. Our sufferings should not lead us to lose hope, but instead to gain more hope. But Alan, you may ask, what if this hope is not true? 
what if this hope of glory doesn't exist or doesn't actually end up happening? And if it doesn't happen, then it means that our sufferings are not going to be worth it. Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Let me assure you from the rest of Romans 5 why this hope is absolutely certain. Firstly, our assurance comes from love. Please read, me, read with me from uh, verses 5 to 8. And hope does not put us to shame. Or in other words, this hope will not disappoint us. Why not? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, the very fact that God has given us the Holy Spirit proves that he truly loves us. The Spirit of God, the very Spirit of God has been poured into our hearts. If God was still angry at our sins, if God was still angry at our sins, which rightly so, he should be angry at our sins, but if he was still angry, why would he give us his spirit? That would make no sense. You see, giving us the Holy Spirit is like God showing his commitment to love, to love us. It's like when you're buying a house. Right? Why do they ask you to pay the 10% deposit? Well, it's to make sure that you are committed to pay the rest of your mortgage. And so the Holy Spirit is like that deposit. It's like the down payment of God's eternal love for us. And God has already paid the, the deposit. And he has already shown his commitment to love us. And so the God who loves us will not put our hope to shame. But Alan, you might say, some people pay the deposit, but they still but then they change their mind. Right? How do we know that God won't change his mind? Well, again, I'm glad you asked. Again, the answer is because God loves us. Because not only did God give us his spirit, God also gave us his son. Let's read from verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Right? Christ died for those who rejected God, for those who wanted nothing to do with God, the ungodly. Why is that important? Well, look at verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Now, a righteous person is like someone who is always upright and always obedient to the law. Right? Imagine someone who never jaywalks, uh, never speeds, never watches pirate and movies, always does his tax returns on time, probably a vegan. You'd respect... That was a joke. You would respect them, but you probably wouldn't jump in front of a bus to save their life. Would you? No, no, you wouldn't, because they've got no personal relevance to you, right? They are not worth your sacrifice. 
on the other hand, though, for a good person, right? A good person is like someone who's kind, someone who's generous, someone who's really helpful, right? Someone like my colleague who would make food and bring it to work to share with everyone. Right? There's one time she gave me a whole tub, a whole jar of kimchi, right? And it was delicious. It was like the best thing ever. You're more likely to, to jump in front of a bus for someone like that, right? Than some random law-abiding citizen. Like, who, who cares? But because that, there's a bit more personal relevance, isn't there? They're a bit more worthy of your sacrifice. But even then, it's a, it's a massive maybe. Right? You might just consider it a little bit more seriously. right? You might just possibly dare to die for that person. But we, we are neither good nor righteous. We are ungodly and wicked people. So if barely anyone would sacrifice themselves for a good person, let alone a righteous person, then who would sacrifice themselves for us sinful people? Well, look at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us not when we were good or righteous, but when we were unworthy of his sacrifice. This is the ultimate proof that God truly loves us. God loved us by sending his one and only son to die on behalf of his enemies. I mean, that's what John 3.16 is all about, right? For God so loved the world, and this is how God loved the world. He sent his one and only son to die for their sins. When we were most undeserving, that was when Christ died for us. And so God has shown his love for us by giving us both both his spirit and his son. Both. And so the God who loves us will not put our hope to shame. But just in case, right? just in case you're not convinced, just in case, Paul makes another great argument in verses 9 to 11. The second argument is that our assurance comes from our reconciliation. Have you ever heard of a rhetorical question? I've been asking a bunch of those throughout this sermon. But basically, a rhetorical question is when you ask uh, a when you ask the question, not to get an answer because the answer is blatantly obvious, but you, you ask it anyway to make some sort of point. For example, did the sun rise in the west today? Well, the answer is obviously no because we know that the sun always rises from the east, right? But you ask that question to show how, how, how something really like unnatural has happened. 
something very unusual has happened if the sun has somehow risen from the west. And so in verse 9, Paul asks a very good rhetorical question. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Now, God's wrath is referring to uh, God's righteous anger. And just to rephrase the question, right? Basically, Paul's saying, Jesus has already shed his blood for us on the cross. And he has took on God's righteous anger on our behalf. That's already happened in the past. So if, if Jesus has already dealt with God's anger, then why, why will we not be saved? Why won't we, be, won't we be saved from God's anger? That'll make no sense. Because if we won't be saved by, from God's anger, it means that Jesus shed his blood for nothing. That kind of makes sense. And another rhetorical question in verse 10. For if, while we were still God's, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Or in other words, we have already been reconciled to God through the death of his son, Jesus. Our relationship has already been restored. We are already reconciled to God. Not enemies, but friends. Not just friends, but children of God. And so if our relationship has already been restored, then why would we not be saved? The point is this, right? God has already done the hard part. So surely he will do the easy part. God has already done the unthinkable. He has already given his son to die for his enemies. So surely God would do the easy part. He will surely save those who Jesus had already died for. Because saving his beloved children, his reconciled children, is a lot easier than sending his son to die for his enemies. It's kind of like this, right? Has anyone heard of the Oxfam... 100k walk I haven't until my colleague told me about it um, about the time that he did an 100k walk with a group of friends I, I don't know why anyone would do a 100k walk but apparently lots of people do right it's a 100k walk you go in teams of four and you try to smash it out in uh, 48 hours but it's not like a relay of four people you have to finish together as a team so it's pretty insane but anyway so apparently my colleague, right, he would go for four-hour walks at 12 a.m. just to get mentally prepared for walking overnight. Because that's what you do when you walk 100 k's over 48 hours. Right? It's crazy. They, they train so much. And because of the training, they end up finishing the walk in 30, 36 hours, which I think is pretty impressive. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Now, do you think my colleague would ever be afraid of walking 15 minutes to a train station? Probably not. I mean, he's already done the hard part of walking a 100k walk. I mean, how much is a 1k walk to a local train station? Surely he would do the easy part of walking 1k to a train station. And likewise, God has already done 
the hard part of sending his son to die for his enemies. So surely, surely, he would do the easy part of saving the people who Jesus had died for. As justified Christians, our hope is certain. It is so certain that Christians can boast in God. Look at verse 11. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We can boast in the God who reconciled us out of his love for us. We can boast knowing that the God who loves us will not put our hope to shame. We can boast even when our hope is put to the test, when we experience suffering. Right? Whether that's Christian suffering, Christian suffering, or general suffering. Right? Christian suffering, whatever that is, um, maybe it's like being persecuted for our faith, uh, being mocked or alienated, or even fired from our workplaces like Israel Falau, for not being willing to compromise on our Christian morals, Christian ethics, biblical ethics. But even if we are persecuted for our faith, we can still boast, can't we? We boast that even though they can take away our dignity, they cannot take away our identity. We are children of God, the heirs who will inherit the new creation. We boast because the God who loves us will not put our hope to shame. Now, another type of Christian suffering is when we lose our spiritual battle against sin. When we struggle to kill the sin in our lives, when we have to face the consequences of our sins, or when we have to face the consequences of the sins of those around us. And even if we we succumb to our sinful desires, we can still boast, can't we? We boast that Jesus has already shed his blood for us and dealt with God's anger. We boast because we know that we will be redeemed. We will have redeemed bodies, new glorified bodies, in the new creation, where there is no sin, no suffering, no death. We boast because the God who loves us will not put our hope to shame. What about general suffering? For example, what if we are made redundant and can't provide for our families? I have a colleague who joined Deacon the same time as I did. And the reason why she was there was because she was made redundant by her previous employer. She worked in a different university for over 10 years, and she was made redundant because they had to cut costs. So they cut her loose as if she was costing their money. It kind of made her lose hope in humanity that some people will be so concerned about making money that they don't care about other people's well-being. But even if we lose our jobs, 
we can still boast, can't we? We boast that our hope is not in humanity, sinful humanity, because humanity will, will always, will always disappoint us. But God will never disappoint us, because the God who loves us will not put our hope to shame. So what about you? What do you put your hope in? Many international students put their hope in their education. They hope that getting a better education can get them a better job or maybe even a better chance to stay in Australia or maybe even a permanent resident visa. They can certainly hope that this will be true, but their hope is not certain at all. But it's not just the international students or some international students. It's all those who put their hope in their education, in their career, in their intellect, their physical abilities, health, Medicare, money, super funds, retirement, investments, properties, status, reputation, power, politicians, politics, AFL football, philosophy, wisdom, science, justice, even religion, our community, our family, our children. That's a very Asian thing, our children, our marriage. If I was just if I was married, I'd be ha- our marriage. Friendships. Even churches, even church leaders, pastors, having good morals, even doing good works. If your hope is in any of these things, then you have nothing to boast about. Because all these things will disappoint you. Because all these things will pass away in the new creation. But justified Christians have something to boast about. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast because our hope is certain. We boast whether in joy or in suffering, knowing that the God who loves us will not put our hope to shame. So why don't you put your hope in this God instead? This God who gave his son, Jesus, to die for you, to have the certain hope of glory. Only then can you boast, knowing that the God who loves us will not put our hope to shame. Let's thank God for his love for us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your love to us. We thank you for your son Jesus who died on the cross 
to take away our sins, that we can be called children of God and be heirs of the new creation. Thank you for this hope that you have given us. And thank you that this hope is certain because you are the God who loves us and you won't put our hope to shame. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.